0: I'm Mary Parker, and welcome to this episode of Eureka's Sounds of Science. Today we are looking ahead at the coming year. I am joined by several experts who will tell me all about what they think will be the next big thing in their field, and offer their predictions for the industry at large. First up is Dr. Lauren Black distinguished scientist for Charles River. Dr. Black is recognized as a leader in the rare disease community, and can tell us what may be in store for the coming year on the rare disease front. Welcome Lauren. Good morning, Mary, how are you? I'm not doing too bad. So what, if anything, do you think could change for the rare disease drug development in the coming year or so?
1: Wow, that's really hard to keep up with all the changes actually, so I can just scratch (sighs) the surface. I'm involved in gene therapies and oligonucleotides and SIRNAs, as well as other advanced medicines, including cell therapy. And what we're seeing is, of course, the continued development of CAR T-cell products for advanced cancers. Mm-hmm. Those have been rolling along for the last decade with a couple of setbacks recently. But generally speaking, amazing, miraculous therapies for people that would otherwise die from their cancers. But in the oligonucleotides and the SRNA fields, we've seen a sudden spurt of approvals for oligonucleotides, including Tofersen for ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease recently. Mm. That is only the second intrathecally or direct CNS delivered oligonucleotide that's been approved so far. The first one was nusinersen for spinal muscular atrophy. But that's our second intrathecal oligonucleotide. And then we've got, I think, all total, there's been about 15 oligos approved so far. And several of those have been escalating in frequency in terms of approvals in the last two years. So have you noticed
0: a shift in the industry or in society regarding rare diseases?
1: I think it's much more on, on people's mind. I mean that one in five of us that's going to develop a rare disease is starting to resonate. You know, if it isn't you, it's going to be someone in your family. If it's not in your immediate family, it's going to be one of your first cousins or Mm -hmm. aunts or uncles. And that just means that a rare disease is going to have a genetic basis. And if you're lucky, it has a diagnosis. And if you're extremely lucky, it has a drug, right? But it's going to touch our, all of our lives intimately. And I think that message has started to permeate societal awareness, and I hope it penetrates into Congress and (laughs) all the other parties that have to help um, determine our public policies toward these things. But certainly people in general are getting to be more aware of this. Do you
0: think there will be more action in gene therapies or in oligonucleotides in the next year or two? And also, which of those two is maybe more affordable, even if it's just by
1: pennies? It's really hard to to know. I mean, it depends on what disease you're going after, how many patients there are, how many you can enroll in the trial. That bears a lot on the practicality of how long the clinical trials take to enroll and then the statistics to be robust mm-hmm. enough. The oligonucleotides, I think, are somewhat more practical from the potential of the manufacturing aspects are much more simplistic than trying to generate and a gene therapy vector product. So I would say from the perspective of that, oligonucleotides are a little bit more straightforward. But the penetration, and what I mean by that is how much you can really upend a disease and reach for the cure, Mm -hmm. is actually, the big one is actually in a gene therapy that's replacing a gene that someone lacked and is in a critical pathway. So, they're different from the perspective of what the end game is. Mm -hmm. And you could say that the gene therapies are high risk, high reward. You know, when they work, they're beautiful. Yeah. And oligonucleotides sometimes have trouble getting to the site of action and sometimes only cause a partial efficacy, if you will. Yeah. I think what we have to keep in mind with that is that all of the diseases that we're going after are severely debilitating for these products. They're not for your average pain in the knee kind of disease. Right. Right.
0: Are there any specific changes you would hope to see on the regulatory side that could better support innovation in rare disease research? I know you're also an expert at regulations. So,
1: Yeah, I've had to deal with a lot of it over the years um, yeah. when, I, when I worked there. And subsequently, we work on a number of different INDs, uh, just working in the back room behind our sponsors to try to support them. Mm -hmm. So we hear about the FDA opinions over time as we read these letters. And what I can say is that Center for Biologics especially has been putting it out there that they are going to get on the rare disease bandwagon. Peter Marks, who's head of Center for Biologics, has recently announced a program called SMART Mm-hmm. It's basically modeled after the idea with the success scene with what do they call it? The full court press to try to develop COVID vaccines. Oh, uh,
0: Project Moonshot, I
1: want to say. Yeah, 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 that's it. I knew it was one of those. <laughs> it's,
0: kind of doesn't those it doesn't seem back. like it was a million years ago. <laughs> it it that's also why yesterday. it's <laughs> not in my short
1: term memory. Good good job, you. Thank you. Um, Project Moonshot. Um, Project Moonshot. So basically, they're they're restyling uh, Rare Disease Full Court Press. After that, okay. And uh, Peter Marks intends to hire uh, a bunch of new reviewers to provide the really uh, advanced handholding <laughs> for people that are in academics, for people that are in small companies and collaborations, and or foundations that are developing these drugs. That's why I love working in rare diseases you feel like you're part of that circle where you're all holding hands. (laughs) And and, and instead of singing, you know, you're you're doing science, right? Right. You're doing science for the greater good. And it it bears in mind that all of the advances that we're doing in these kinds of advanced diseases, every gene we fix gives us some learning about another disease that's possibly related to that genetic pathway, but not exactly that gene, right? Mm -hmm. So for every ALS drug that we learn, it's something about from an oligonucleotide tells us something about a gene therapy for a different kind of ALS. You see what I mean? Yeah. You can cross yeah. over between the different products for the same diseases, and you can put together the learnings from both. Center for Biologics and Center for Drugs are two different entities, but the disease community is the same, right? Yeah you know, they're product agnostic, they just want to fix it. And the academics that are learning about the pathways can look at either kind of trial and and learn exactly what's going on in humans and how they should develop new drugs. So I do think that the efforts, although when I say four new drug approvals, maybe that's not very impressive to some people, but it's hugely impressive when you think that the previous years, there was four across four years, now yeah. we've got four in one year. You know, you yeah. I mean? have to look at yeah. it relativistically as to the momentum that's starting to build. This this new tech, this technology of using like AAV gene therapies, it's only been in use. You know, count them a double handful of years. Mm-hmm. You know, like give us a break on the speed here. You know, like I just heard from somebody that works in genetics uh, last weekend. I was talking to them over cookie baking. And they said that you can now get a whole genome sequencing for under a thousand dollars. Wow! Right? Well, didn't it take us twenty years to sequence one person <laughs> not so long ago? Yeah. And now, and then there was a huge furore over it when we uh, heard about Stanford and a bunch of other supercomputers that were networked together a year or two ago, and they were able to sequence one child who was in an acute emergency. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. think within the day by linking yeah. up a, a bunch of different centers to do the data analysis on the genome super fast. That's what takes so much time usually. Yeah. So, you know, it's fascinating to know that with the coupled efforts of so many different institutions trying to make genome sequencing more manageable, more accessible to, you know, people in remote vicinities, and then trying to get the, the diagnoses earlier in mm-hmm. patients' lives in, in what's called their, you know, diagnostic odyssey. you know it takes mm-hmm. 10 years or five years sometimes to get these diagnoses. When we move these calendars ahead and start to get more immediate screening, of course, we look forward to a time in which we take a drop of blood from a newborn and just go ahead and sequence the kid.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I would sign up for that immediately. God knows what's lurking. Right? And if you could get ahead of it, why wouldn't you want to know? Absolutely.
0: Next up is Dr. Anjali Venkateswaran, Senior Director of Strategic Partnerships for Charles River. She is an expert on scouting new technologies and emerging trends that could be important for connecting Charles River with the next big advance in drug discovery. She's here to discuss the topic of antibody drug conjugates, which could be big for cancer treatment in the next year or two. Welcome, Anjali. Thank you, Mary,
3: thank you for having me.
0: Oh, thank you so much for being here again, because this is your second time on the podcast. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Always a pleasure.
0: So what exactly is an antibody-drug conjugate?
3: So antibody-drug conjugates are a really interesting class of modalities, right? Because they combine payloads, typically chemotherapy therapeutics, mm-hmm. with an antibody. And both of those modalities have been around for a long, long time. So what ADCs do is they kind of combine them and link them together. So here's a fun fact: while the you know the um, drug development space has been really interested in ADCs, and recently mm-hmm. ADCs have been around for a long, long time. And if I recall, the first ADC to be approved was back in nineteen in the nineteen eighties. The first ADC clinical trial was in the eighties, and then you know there's been a over almost, I think over a dozen ADCs that have been approved since that time frame. However, in the early days, ADCs kind of got a bad rap because they're made up of three individual components, right? So mm-hmm. you've got your targeting antibody, which is essentially analogous to an engine on a train, tells you where you need to go, drives the drug to your target, which is a cancer cell. Mm-hmm. And then there's a linker, which basically links the antibody to your payload. Now, in the previous iterations of ADCs, the linker technology was not where it should have been. There were instances where the payload, which is a toxic drug a chemotherapy, would fall off and mm. cause a lot of off-target effects. So ADCs kind of got a bit of a bad reputation there. But thanks to developments in antibody engineering, in linker chemistry, and a creative design of payload, ADCs are really experiencing a renaissance of sorts. I really do believe that this is a modality that's only going to continue growing. And you, when you see the number of ADCs that are being approved and the buzz around them, it's pretty clear that I think ADCs are, are going to be here to stay.
0: So in the most basic terms, an ADC or antibody drug conjugate will take something like a chemotherapy and be able to target it to the cancer cells and theoretically bypass all the other healthy cells, yeah?
3: Yes. And cool. so that that's, that's exactly right. So ADCs, the 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 most important element is that targeting concept, right? Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. and so that's where the target of interest comes in. And the antibody specificity comes in. And, but there has been quite a bit of success in specific cancer types like ovarian, triple negative breast cancer, and m- most importantly, in hematological mal- malignancies. In other words, leukemias, different types of lymphomas. That's where there's been a ton of success. So essentially, we're looking at, you know, leukemias, lymphomas. And gynecological malignancies is where we've seen the most success to date. That's really
0: great because, correct me if I'm wrong, but things like the blood cancers can be a little harder to treat because they can't be touched physically. It's the whole body if it affects exactly. all of the blood. Yeah. Exactly. And you could also, in theory, deliver higher doses of chemotherapy, since it won't be affecting the healthy cells in theory. So it won't cause as many side effects if you deliver higher, more toxic doses.
3: Absolutely. That's absolutely true. The other really cool thing about ADCs is you're able to tweak multiple components. You're able to tweak the antibody, to Mm -hmm. engineer an antibody with the maximum specificity. You're able to really tweak and improve the linker so that, you know, the payload doesn't fall off prematurely or inappropriately. And you're also able to creatively design the payload. In other words, you don't have to only use chemotherapy. In fact, there is a recently approved ADC, the brand name is Lumoxity, that targets hairy cell leukemia, and its payload is actually a bacterial toxin. Hmm. But at the end of the day, it does the same thing. It goes in and it basically kills the tumor cells from the inside out. So
0: what does it look like on the regulatory side? Are they seeing more INDs for
3: this type of technology? Are they getting excited about it? Yeah. I mean, there's a few things that point to a really exciting regulatory landscape. First off, there's over a dozen ADCs that have been approved. And the number changes by a few depending on, (laughs) you know, because keep in mind some of the early ADCs, there was a couple of them that were discontinued and then one was reapproved. So the number shifts a little bit, but definitely over a dozen FDA approved ADCs that are available today. Mm-hmm. And there are well over 150 ADCs in clinical trial, which basically means all those INDs were approved and they're now in the clinic. And the preclinical pipeline is just looking bigger and better. The reason for this is because, again, with the improvement of these individual components and the sum of the parts, there are a lot of drug, you know, oncology drug development companies who are looking at ADCs going, wow, this is a modality that works if the right components are put together. And in fact, we're seeing a lot of pharma companies like, you know, Pfizer, AstraZeneca who have publicly announced acquisition or asset deals. For ADCs, and so that to me is a big indication. When big pharma is interested in developing and commercializing ADCs, that to me suggests that you know they definitely have the knowledge on how to get a, a therapeutic asset from preclinical through IND into the clinic and into approval. So mm-hmm. very very positive trends and definitely the data is really really compelling. I'll give you an example. There was a one of the ADCs that caused a lot of buzz. Was an ADC for HER2 positive metastatic breast cancer called NHER2. And the phase three clinical data for this particular ADC showed a pretty amazing 72% reduction in disease progression. That's, that's kind of amazing. And so, again, when you look at these kind of data, you're like, wow, these ADCs really work.
0: <laughs> yeah. And can you go into more detail on some of the more recent technological advances in antibody engineering that have led to this kind of boom?
3: Yeah, I mean, therapeutic antibodies have been around for a long, long time. But increasingly, we're seeing just more sophisticated screening methodologies. I mean, we've come a long way from the traditional hybridomas and the instability of hybridomas and things like that. Now we're looking at extremely sophisticated fanning methods, which is basically a simple way of saying you're screening for for high affinity antibody binders. You're looking at individual cell screening and you're able to really zoom in. There's a lot of publications and a lot of platforms out there that allow you to zoom in at the individual B cell level to find those diamonds, find those antibodies that really have high affinity and high specificity. So I anticipate, again, as these methods you know, move beyond R&D into commercial applications and with collaborations between engineers and antibody scientists and bioinformatics people to analyze the data, we're just going to see a boom, I believe, in the next generation of antibodies that are really going to surpass anything that we've ever seen.
0: David Clark is a senior research leader in Charles Rivers' computer-aided drug design group in the UK, also known as CAD. He has spoken with me before about how artificial intelligence and machine learning can help the drug development process. With AI making more headlines every day, he's here to predict what could be hot for 2024 in the world of AI and CAD in general. Welcome David. Thank you, Mary. Thanks for joining me. So what are some of the ways that AI can speed up drug research in 2024?
4: Well, I think there'll be potentially numerous ways, and I'm sure I won't uh, enumerate all of them, but um, (laughs) I have a few. It's sort of at the front of my mind, and the first of which is the uh, AI-based techniques for protein structure prediction. Uh, So I'm Mm. talking about things like uh, AlphaFold and RosettaFold. I mean, they've already had a a marked impact on uh, numerous areas of structural biology and drug design. I think you know, there's only one way forward for that, and that's upwards, because they haven't sat still, those uh, people developing those methods. There were some criticisms of sort of the early versions, but um, now they're mm-hmm. coming back with enhancements that are due to, I believe, be released in 2024. So that will include things like protein models that include Water molecules and metal ions, and even positioning ligands within protein structures, and also being able to predict the structures of protein complexes. So, you know, molecular entities that contain more than one protein, and that's again something that was a bit of a limitation in the the early versions.
0: Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but just to give like a very thumbnail sketch (laughs) version of the problem. Proteins are folded in numerous different ways, making them quite complex and kind of hard for us to visualize, but it's important for us to know the shape so that we can find drugs that can attach to them?
4: Yes, that's right. So, I mean, protein function is determined by protein structure. And as you say, Mm. it's a hugely complex problem. So starting from essentially just the sequence, the amino acid Mm -hmm. sequence of a protein, try to predict you know how that sequence will fold into its three-dimensional shape which will enable it to to have its function in the body and this is something that obviously nature has solved very efficiently because proteins fold very rapidly but uh, until really the advent of alpha fold maybe i think two or three years ago now it was still a, a big challenge
0: so, what other aspects of computer-aided drug design do you hope to see progress in in the next year?
4: There are a few things still sort of under the AI uh, area that uh, I'd like to see progress in. So, there's been a lot of development in these techniques, so-called generative AI uh, for mm-hmm. drug design. Now, generative AI has kind of entered a bit more a bit a bit more into the public consciousness with things like ChatGPT, right. which are generative AI for, you know, text, which we're all Mm -hmm. very familiar with. But in uh, the field of drug design, the generative AIs are um, useful for actually generating chemical structures, so new ideas for drug molecules. So you can train uh, a neural network to have some understanding of what a drug molecule looks like, and then present it with a specific task and ask it to invent essentially some molecules that look something like what you've uh, shown it, but that are still novel. Mm. Um, So that's, I think, an area with great promise, great potential, because we know that chemical space is just vast. I mean, (laughs) people estimate that you know 10 to the 60 molecules you know of sort of drug like size and and composition could exist in in theory mm-hmm. uh, and even our largest collections even virtual collections are still in the sort of billions or trillions so mm-hmm. you know there's a vast area of of space that's untapped still so the prospect of having computer algorithms that can invent novel but sensible compounds mm-hmm. uh, is very, very exciting. It's It's been something we've been wanting to do for, you know, 30 years or so, I think, really, all of my career. And it looks like we're starting to sort of get to the point now where that is beginning to be uh, a realistic prospect.
0: Uh, what other things do you think are going to be important in the coming year?
4: Yes, well, perhaps switching away from AI, at least for the moment, there's still a lot of Interesting work going on in, in the broader CAD field. Something that we're having to increasingly deal with is um, what are known as newer modalities. Historically, computer aided drug design has really concerned itself largely with small molecules. Perhaps you know the sort of small molecules like aspirin or you know other drugs mm-hmm. that we're perhaps historically familiar with but you know when you take a look at the kind of molecules that the FDA is is approving now those types of you know what we would historically have considered drugs probably only make up about 50% of the approvals and so there are you know larger numbers of things like antibodies and other types of therapeutic compound or molecule that are increasingly being important in in drug discovery and in and in therapeutic treatments uh increasingly RNA in its various forms is coming to the fore as as a class of drug target. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, you know, historically the sort of modelling techniques that we've grown up with have really been directed towards normal proteins, not DNA and RNA. So there's a whole area of development and you know proof of new tools that will enable us to hopefully address those kinds of challenges when they come our way.
0: So what are some challenges you predict will come in the next year and how can we maybe overcome them?
4: Well, I think coming back to AI, um, you know, we have this, I think, fundamental challenge still that, you know, whatever algorithm or or computer method you're doing, you know, the old rule of garbage in and garbage out still (laughs) applies, you know, there's no way around that. and I think people are, you know, growing increasingly aware that AIs are very dependent on the kind of training set that they learn from, and people are very mm-hmm. worried about this in some areas, you know, in particular things like recruitment. You know, you might get bias because you've only trained the AI on certain types mm-hmm. of, of candidate, and it's the same, you know, in, in any field, and in drug design, it will be the same. So we need to make sure that our training sets are as large as possible, uh, as high quality as possible. And of course, you know, that takes a vast amount of effort to, you know, assemble and curate those Mm -hmm. kind of data sets. But hopefully, you know, over time, that careful effort will pay off.
0: Yeah. This might be a personal rant, but Mm -hmm. in, in, in my opinion, a job category that is perhaps being overlooked and underused by people building these these AI databases is librarians. I mean, they mm. know all about how to curate data in ways that are going to be readable and unbiased and good for the computer to be able to process. I mean, digital, there are a whole, you know, master's degrees in, in mm. digital librarianship or, or whatever they call it, so get out there and hire some librarians that's what, that's <laughs> yeah, no, my no. advice <laughs> well
4: that's right you need those kind of people who have that attention to detail really i mm-hmm, think absolutely you know, when you're doing these kind of tasks because you know it's not the most necessarily the most glamorous of activity but it is it's it's fundamental to you know success in this area
0: absolutely absolutely um, Well, thank you so much for talking with me, David, and I hope that all of these predictions come true in the coming (laughs) year or 2
4: (laughs) that It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much, Mary.
0: Liz Nunnemaker is Charles Rivers' Director of Animal Welfare and also the outgoing president of the 3Rs Collaborative. She is tuned in to what will be important in the research animal field in the coming year. Welcome, Liz. Thank you. So glad to have you. So just as a quick intro, can you tell us about the three R's and the three R's collaborative?
2: Yeah, so the the three R's are refine, reduce and replace. And very briefly, in case you haven't heard of these before, Refine means that we are critically looking at our methods that we use for working with animals and we're figuring out ways to minimize the impact on them. Mm -hmm. Um, Usually people think of this as, you know, providing pain medications to animals and that is important, but also looking at potential stressors or distressors for our animals. And this could be as simple as looking at how we house these animals, how we handle them. And so using things like group housing for social animals, making sure that we use low stress handling methods are all Mm -hmm. really important refinements. Reduction or reduce are ways of optimizing the number of animals that we use in research. And so this might be getting more data from fewer animals or just using smart research design strategies so that we can use the right number of animals to ensure scientific validity. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, replace is finding ways to not use animals at all. These methods are generally uh, revolve around the use of cell culture techniques and computer simulations. Um, So the three R's collaborative is a growing nonprofit organization that's really committed to identifying and promoting practical and impactful 3 R's initiatives. They currently have a few different focuses. Um, So one of these is environmental health monitoring for the ultimate replacement of live animal sentinels with environmental testing. Hmm. Using uh, refined or low-stress handling methods with mice, uh, the use of microphysiological systems to ultimately decrease, potentially even replace the use of animals in um, primarily drug discovery, but in other areas. Then we have things like trans- translational digital biomarkers, and these will help reduce the number of animals needed because we're able to gather a lot more information, a lot more data on a given study. But it also improves the lives of the research animals because it's minimizing how much we're handling them because the smart caging techniques allow us to gather this data without even interacting with the animals.
0: So we, as in Charles River, came up with the idea of the fourth R last year, responsibility. So looking ahead, what are some of the pressures on the industry in general to approach animal models responsibly?
2: Yeah, so I see it as as two primary responsibilities. We have a responsibility to the animals that we're using in research, that we are making uh, the best choices possible to care for them, that we minimize the use of animals wherever we can, replacing them with inanimate objects, whether it be cell culture or computer modeling. And we also have a responsibility to the public. The -hmm. public needs to know that Charles River is truly committed to improving the lives of the research animals and minimizing the number of animals that we're using in research. And these are two areas where Charles River has put a ton of effort into um, improving the lives of of the animals that we are using in research. And this is a really nice application of that fourth R responsibility.
0: Okay. So you mentioned some of these earlier, but we can get into more detail. What are some of the newest trends in refining animal research?
2: Yeah, so there are a couple that are that are really important to me, but are also, I think, <laughs> up and coming trends. So low stress handling is something that has been around uh, primarily in the UK for the last you know, 10, 15 years, mm-hmm. but is really starting to catch on in the US and throughout the rest of Europe. And we are seeing a huge increase in uptake of low stress handling, which is really exciting Um, since mice are the predominant animal used in research. Another big upcoming trend is in the use of microsampling. Um, And microsampling is essentially just using really tiny volumes of biologic samples, primarily blood, from research animals. And this is really important because it's easier on the animal when you can mm-hmm. just use you know, a, a toe stick or a tail stick and collect a drop of blood rather than trying to restrain them and get a blood sample. But it also translates very nicely into the clinic because it's actually easier for people as well, especially when we start talking about in-home drug monitoring, mm. clinical trials. It's, it's much, much easier on the human patient as well. So it's a nice a really nice system that improves the lives of both research animals and human patients. That's wonderful. I love that. And then um, some other areas that are are up and coming is is the use of smart caging and translational digital biomarkers. The cost of this technology is slowly but surely coming down and the applications are doing nothing but increase. And I think as we continue to look for smart ways to use this technology, it'll allow us to have really nice refinements for animals while gathering even more data
0: that is scientifically relevant. That's fantastic, I imagine this also has a positive impact on the veterinarians and the animal technicians who care for the animals. um uh, Obviously, they only got into this sort of work because they do love animals and want to you know make them as happy as possible. So all these other low stress things that keep the animals happy would also keep the people happy
2: oh, absolutely, and it goes a long way to to minimizing compassion fatigue and mm-hmm, those individuals mm-hmm. that are so dedicated to to this field,
0: yeah. So finally, what will likely be some of the trends in the coming years for replacing animals entirely? That's the goal, obviously.
2: Yeah, one area that I'm I'm really excited about is the use of environmental sampling for health monitoring of rodents. This is something that has been slowly but surely gaining momentum. And it's really impressive because it allows us to monitor the health status of the billions of mice that are used around the globe in research, replacing them with environmental health monitor rather than using um, live animal sentinels for the Mm -hmm. purpose, the sole purpose of disease detection. Another important area that's continuing to grow is the use of microphysiological systems or MPS systems. These systems currently exist for every single organ system, but their use has been a little bit hit and miss, partially because there's not been widespread regulatory support for these systems, but as that that data continues to grow, there's a number of individuals that are working to collect all of this data so that they can start putting pressure on the regulatory bodies for data acceptance. And this will be great because it'll ultimately lead to a reduction initially in the use of animals, Mm -hmm. but long-term it could ultimately replace the use of animals in drug development. And going hand in hand with this is the use of organoids which are essentially tiny, self-organized 3D tissue cultures that that can be used either alone or in conjunction with with MPS systems. And they allow you to look at cells and how they interact together in an organ structure, um, how they're going to respond to the environment, and how they might respond to drugs. So they are a very powerful ally in the drug development process that doesn't use live animals. You can do a lot of initial screening in the drug development process with these organoids rather than using mice and rats like that are traditionally
0: used. Yeah, that'd be great. I mean, I know a lot of them are used in these early stages in drugs that might never get past that first stage, So, which can seem like kind of a waste if you have a, a another method of, of weeding those drugs out. So I think that's a really important step.
2: Yeah. And it's exactly because it's not an all or none. I think a lot of people think, oh, we have to 100% re- you know, eliminate the use of animals. Mm-hmm. But these technologies, organoids and microphysiological systems, they're very synergistic with the animal models that we're using. And so you can answer some questions better in you know, either in the in vitro system or in the in vivo system. But ultimately, it leads to a more scientifically sound set of data so that we can you know accelerate the drug development process and make sure that that drugs are adequately screened and that they're safe using the fewest number of animals possible
0: yeah exactly I mean if it's not total replacement it's still definitely reduction so exactly that's, that's exactly. an important point Well thank you so much Liz this has been really interesting and I hope that all these predictions come true in the coming year
2: Thank you so much for having <laughs> me it's great to be here
0: All right bye bye.